Chapter 4 I had planned on an afternoon and evening of watching TV, but Rachel assured me that on Tuesday there was never anything on. Nothing but lame sitcoms rerun this week, she said. You're not missing anything. There are always these messages, I pointed out. These what? The shorter shows that are displayed between longer shows. These messages. They are often my favorites. Zestfully clean. Zestfully clean. You are not fully clean unless you are zestfully clean. So much information condensed into so brief a format. So much emotional intensity. You're starting to scare me, Axe. In any case... Prince Jake had decided we should act immediately to discover what, if anything, the Yerks were doing at the animal testing laboratory and meatpacking plant. We had all assembled at Cassie's barn to prepare for the mission. Cassie's barn is called the Wildlife Rehabilitation Clinic. She and her father offer medical treatment to injured non-human animals. Non-human animals filled cages all around us. Many of them were creatures I had morphed. When I say we all assembled, I mean, of course, Prince Jake, our leader, a male who is distinguished by being taller than the others, Rachel, a female who is considered beautiful by humans and held in awe by her fellow animorphs for her bravery, Cassie, the most knowledgeable and gentlest of the group, and Tobias, Morco, and me, six of us, all with the morphing power but very little else to oppose the York invasion of Earth. It is an impossible situation, of course. But it has been impossible from the start. And we are not dead yet. If I were dead, I could hardly be expected to be communicating. That was humor. I believe. Meat? What do they want with meat? Tobias demanded from his perch in the rafters. What, you're asking me? Morco said. Like I know? Eric just said they have this lab where they do animal testing and this meatpacking plant. That's all I know. Well, this is just stupid, Rachel commented. Meat? Animal testing? Why? They're cleverly infiltrating Mickey D's to learn the secret of the special sauce, Morco said. Mayonnaise, ketchup, and relish, Rachel grumbled. Big secret. Poison the food supply? Cassie suggested as she forced a medicine down the throat of a goose. Kill a lot of people. No, I said. If the Yurks wished to kill a lot of humans, they could simply use their dracon beams from orbit to ignite the atmosphere and incinerate all life on the planet. Everyone turned to stare at me. Well, there's a happy thought. Marco said with what I believe is a tone of voice called sarcasm. We won't get any answers sitting around here guessing, Prince Jake said. He sighed. Rachel, I am messed up in old lady chambers class. Did you take decent notes? Yeah, I can email them over to you after we get back. But it's like a whole bunch of stuff. Prince Jake sighed again and rubbed his eyes. Okay, look. Let's go get this over with fast, or I'll end up spending the weekend doing a makeup paper, which would seriously stink. What exactly are we doing? Cassie asked. We're just going to take a look at this animal testing lab, 
See what's what? What is animal testing? I asked. They get a bunch of animals together and they give them quizzes for magazines, Murko said. You know, like, how shy are you? And is he Mr. Right? I hesitated before responding. It was probably humor. I suspect you are making a joke, but I am not certain. No one ever is, Rachel said with a laugh. Animal testing labs are facilities where humans use species similar to our own to test the effects of drugs or whatever, Cassie said. They have to see if something is safe for humans, so they see first if it's safe for animals. That sounds prudent, I began to say, but Cassie was not finished. They are also about as close to hell as anything humans create, Cassie said. Uh-oh, here we go, Marco groaned. Quick, everyone find a tree to hug. Look, I'm not a fanatic on this, Cassie said. I'm not arguing against testing some new AIDS drug or a cancer cure, but there are labs where makeup is tested. Only they test it in ways that cause the test animals to go blind. And even when they test for serious stuff, they should try to make the animals' lives a little less horrible. Yeah, get them TV, Morco said. No, wait, that might be cruel. Cassie's eyes flashed, and she bit her lower lip. Cassie is seldom angry, but I believe this was a display of anger. Rachel saw the same thing. Morco, try... Shut up. Cassie, I love you, but this isn't about saving the lab rats. We have a mission here, so let's just go and get it over with. Rachel's right. We can debate animal testing some other day, Prince Jake said. Let's just do this. In, out, and right back. After these messages. Chapter 5 We morphed to birds of prey. My own is called a Northern Harrier. Birds of prey are especially useful for observation because they have incredibly acute vision, as well as excellent hearing. Once morphed, we flew toward the animal testing laboratory. The sun was going down, causing the wild effusion of colors, primarily red and gold, that sometimes occurs at sunset or sunrise. I was afraid of what I might find at the animal testing laboratory. Sometimes, when exposed to what humans consider science, I inadvertently offend my friends. I am often tempted to explain human errors. We flew over a large street called Broad, above a park called Willow, and beyond, toward an area where many buildings had transparent windows replaced by opaque sheets of wood. Few humans were visible, but we saw a great deal of garbage. Garbage is an important human product. Marco kept grumbling about the online chat with the cast of the X-Files he was missing. Online is a primitive human method of communicating in short, truncated, interrupted sentences with anonymous individuals. Humans have several means of communicating in uninterrupted form with known persons, but many prefer online. Like much of human technology, it is inexplicable. Yeah, well, I'm missing precious time trying to figure out how quadratic equations work, Cassie answered. Is that it? Is that the place? Rachel asked. She was above me, to my left. That's the right corner, 
Tobias said. Must be. Doesn't look too sinister. Yeah, I can see a sign. That's it. Prince Jake said. Your basic office park. We flew to the edge of the large empty area where humans placed their cars. The cars were gone. It was the time of day when humans leave their work and go home to consume food. Several groups of young trees had been planted around the empty lot, so we perched among their branches. Most of the building seemed empty, but one, set apart from the others, was surrounded by a ten-foot-high fence made of ingenious interlooped metallic strands and topped with spirals of sharp spiked wire. Across a small parking area sat a plain, two-story brick building deep in the shadows cast by the low slanting rays of the sun. Behind it, parallel to Broad Street, was undeveloped land thick with mature trees. The windows of the building were all closed and protected by vertical bars. The doors were heavy steel. An armed guard sat in a structure that looked like a miniature human house, just behind a gate that was set into the fence. Security, Rachel said with a derisive laugh. Some small morph would be the way to go, Prince Jake said. But what? Even a fly can't get through a locked metal door. And you know the yurks inside are going to be suspicious of any kind of animal, Cassie added. Even the ones they're testing. And we do not know. I paused for a long moment, the way I had seen Victor Newman do. Whenever he does this, the TV camera zooms in on his face. What kind of animals are being tested in there? Five bird of prey heads turned to look at me. They stared at me the way Marco and Eric had earlier. Ox? You okay? Yes, but I must maintain silence till we go to these messages. He's been watching soaps, Marco explained. Oh, he's doing a soap take, Rachel said. A what? A soap take. At least that's what I call it. At the end of a scene, you know how the actors all just freeze and stare and wait for, well, for these messages. Those are my favorites, I said. These messages. We all jerked in surprise. Tobias said, A rabbit. The animal was dead. I could see that its breathing had stopped. Electric fence, Cassie said. Electric. I laughed. I doubt it very much. If this facility is run by the Yurks, then it is certainly a shock front force field. The fence is merely incidental, a deception. The force field will extend in an unbroken dome over the entire facility. A large energy expenditure. He's right, Tobias said. Look around, dead sparrow over there, a rat, too much roadkill. Great, Rachel muttered. That means the only way to get into the grounds is past the security guard, right in the front door. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Look! Cassie said. A large white truck, probably 30 human feet long, passed the trees where we were hidden and pulled up to the gate. 
I could not see the contents of the truck, although I was sure it contained some sort of stuff. I'll listen in. Tobias opened his wings and flew to a solitary tree just outside the fence. The truck driver rolled down his window and presented the guard with a rectangular board with paper affixed. The guard scrutinized it for a moment before pushing a button in the little building where he sat. The gate opened with a rusty whine. The truck started down the drive and disappeared behind the building. Let's follow the fence around and see what he's unloading, Rachel suggested. Wait! Tobias returned, landing on a nearby branch, and regarded us with his intense hawk's eyes. The truck's loaded with chimpanzees. There's no window between the cab and the back, so I couldn't actually see them. But I heard the driver say he had the six chimps they called for. Chimps? Prince Jake frowned. Why chimpanzees? Chimpanzees would be used for some kind of behavioral research, Gussie said. If it was medical, they'd probably use rats or rhesus monkeys. Perhaps the chimps will be transferred to the meatpacking plant? I asked innocently. Oh, gee, let's hope not, Prince Jake said. You never know, Gussie said darkly. Yeah, where do you think they get jerky from? Marco said. The driver said something about being back around four tomorrow, Tobias added. Six more chimps? Rachel wondered. On their way to nothing good, Gussie said thoughtfully. But that's our way in. We go as the chimps. Could we acquire chimpanzees at the gardens? Prince Jake wondered. All we know is they have chimps in that truck. But that may not mean specifically chimpanzees. I mean, the driver may not exactly be a primatologist. Could be rhesus monkeys. Could be howler monkeys. Could be bonobo chimps or some other subspecies. So, wait, here comes the truck. Rachel trained her eagle eyes on it. Hey, it has a parking sticker from the university. Maybe that's where it starts out. Okay, so they come down the highway, get off across from the new mega mall, come up Broad Street, right? Prince Jake said. He was silent for a while, deep in thought. Then, I think I've got an idea. Could work. Is it an insanely dangerous, nearly suicidal idea? Marco asked brightly. Yup, sure is. Chapter 6 The others had spent the day in their human school. Tobias and I had spent the day watching TV, and then watching cars go along a road and into and out of a tunnel. A tunnel is an underground road. Humans build them to pass beneath rivers, or to pass beneath roads or buildings whose presence evidently surprises them. Planning ahead is not a great human virtue. The road was lined with restaurants named Wendy's, Taco Bell, and Fud Ruckers. There were also areas where automobiles were displayed for sale, and there was the store where one could not pay a lot for that muffler. Prince Jake and the others arrived to meet us already in Seagull Morph, wheeling down from above. They were almost invisible against the clouds, white on white. I had been in that same morph all afternoon, 
except for necessary demorphing. Tobias was in his own red-tailed hawk body, resting atop a nearby denuded tree, hung with wires. Tobias could not manage to stand directly on the wires. It had been a long day. Prince Jake had impressed on us the need for precise planning, and it had been necessary for me to demorph and remorph several times in a dumpster, which is a large box filled with stuff humans no longer want. We all set? Prince Jake asked as he swooped down to join me. Yeah, Tobias said. If you need to demorph, there's a delightful dumpster that Axe has been enjoying. No, we're good. Although, whoa, Doritos! Forget it. Empty bag. Axe already ate them. I'm going topside so I can give you all a heads up. Tobias opened his wings and flopped away above the road, above the bright signs of restaurants that served delicious grease and salt. Seagull morph is very useful since it is ubiquitous. Like the birds called pigeons, seagulls may go almost anywhere unremarked. But there is a downside. The seagull has a relentless, obsessive interest in any food that has been thrown away. It is almost as destructing as being human. Everyone clear on the plan? Prince Jake asked. Yeah, we pretty much huddled to our deaths, right? Marco said. Oh, quit your whining, you big baby, Rachel said. We waited near the dumpster till we heard the faint thought speak coming from high above. The truck is en route, passing Church Street. What was the time on the tunnel, Axe? Prince Jake asked. Between four and seven of your minutes, Prince Jake, I said. We timed it repeatedly. With this degree of traffic, we estimate transit time through the tunnel will be closer to seven minutes. Axe, don't call me Prince. Everyone said? Here it comes, Cassie said. The truck appeared, coming down the street toward us. We catch him at the light, Prince Jake reminded us. Everyone careful, okay? This could go bad on us pretty easily, so pay attention. Especially if he doesn't get stopped for that light. Cassie said. Come on, light! Change! Change! It will change from green to yellow in exactly four seconds, Cassie. And I am of the opinion that the light mechanism does not respond to thought-speak please. The traffic slowed as the light in the intersection changed to yellow. Yellow is the color of warning. I do not know why. The delivery truck we had seen the night before was behind a smaller green truck. I heard noises indicating that the truck driver had engaged the pitifully primitive braking system. No! Prince Jake said. One by one, we flopped and caught the air current. My legs tucked beneath me. I opened my wings wider and began to rise as a gusty breeze hit me. Even in the midst of a dangerous mission, I am aware of the fact that when I fly, I feel even more free than I do running across an open meadow. Down, Axe, now! I heard Rachel say. Angling sideways to tack against the breeze, I watched as first Prince Jake and then Cassie 
swept their wings forward to slow down. Marco, Rachel, and I were right behind them, killing airspeed as we headed for the rumbling truck. Tobias was plummeting from high above, ready to follow. The roof was smooth. I slid into Rachel as the indicator light changed and the truck began to pick up speed. I felt the uneven vibrations of the engine as the truck proceeded toward the intersection. I felt the pressure of the wind as the truck accelerated. Suddenly, what had seemed fairly simple began to seem troublesome. Okay, the tunnel's only two blocks away, Prince Jake said, crouching to maintain his balance. Start demorphing. This is crazy, Rachel shouted happily, squinting her beady seagull eyes as the truck's grime swirled around us. I am slipping, I said. You and me both. More fun every minute, Marco complained. My legs were essentially useless at holding on in the face of a powerful wind. I collapsed my legs, opened my wings, and shaped them so as to create a downdraft. The downdraft held me down, but I was still sliding toward the back of the truck. I needed to morph. Cassie had already started, and the additional weight helped to stabilize her position. I focused on the demorph. My feathers melted into a gelatinous coating that began to sprout my natural fur. My stock eyes sprouted from the top of the gull's small head. My beak shrank and withered to nothingness. The sliding stopped. I looked back over the very close edge of the truck. A small car was nearby. The driver had apparently noticed the shifting mess of feathers, fur, and skin. His mouth hung open as he leaned forward to watch. And just then, my tail sprouted to its full length. Wham! The small car sideswiped a limbless tree used to elevate wires. The small car came to a halt very suddenly, having run directly into a stopped car. I turned my emerging stock eyes forward again. I could see the dark arch of the tunnel just ahead. Cassie was fully human already. The others were mostly human, with a dusting of white feathers here and there. Tobias was also mostly human, although for him it was no longer his normal form. Suddenly, we were in the tunnel. Darkness closed around me. The yellow tile ceiling was only inches above me. I had not realized it would be so close. No room! If I raised an arm, it would be scraped along that soot-blackened ceiling. And if I raised my head? The ceiling made a sound as we passed beneath it. I fought down the claustrophobia that is part of any Andalite's heritage. There is sufficient room, I told myself. There is sufficient air. And yet, I did not feel that there truly was enough air or enough space. I could feel the pressure of tons of earth weighing me down. We were underground. Soon we would be underwater. I lay there, my legs curled up beneath me, tail extended flat, upper body pressed low, and stared at the tiles flashing by above me. And the noise! My head was reeling from the cacophony of magnified, echoed noises of engines and brakes 
and radios and horns. I lay still and concentrated on breathing. There was plenty of air, plenty of room, plenty. But I could not just lie there. We had to enter the truck. I would have to move. Okay, human chain time, Cassie yelled to be heard above the constant shriek of noise. It was the only way we had thought of to get into the back of the truck. By grasping hand to hand, hand to ankle. It is something humans, with their much stronger arms and more linear bodies, can do. Hold my feet and lower me over the back so I can open the door, Cassie yelled. I'll go first, Prince Jake said. Not happening, Jake. You weigh twice what I do, Cassie said. Don't distract me when I'm trying to be brave. Cassie shimmied to the back edge of the roof as Prince Jake and Tobias clutched her ankles. Moku threw his arms around Prince Jake's waist and Rachel around Marco's. Lying beside this human chain, I braced with all four hooves against the slick roof and grabbed Prince Jake's ankles. We had no real way to brace ourselves. We could only hope that our bodies, pressed flat, would create sufficient friction to resist the hurricane of wind. Lower! Cussie shouted. I can't quite reach! Carefully, the human and elect chain of bodies inched forward until the only visible part of Cassie was her bare feet. I'm there! She cried. Then, no lock! No lock? No lock! She yelled. And there came a rolling sound as the door slid up into the roof. We hauled Cassie back up. Cassie flipped positions. Still on her stomach, she swung her legs over the back of the truck and held on to the roof's edge as we clutched her wrists. Oh, man, Cassie moaned. What? Prince Jake demanded. Just, oh, man, Cassie said. From inside the truck came a loud cry. <laughs> I was unclear as to the meaning, but I suspected they were noises emitted by the chimpanzees. Perhaps they were alarmed. I certainly was. Cassie swung back and forth. And now, another car was closing the distance behind us. It was dark in the tunnel, but still sufficiently light for the human in the car to clearly see that we were breaking into the truck. The car was also close enough that if Cassie slipped, it would slam into her and most likely kill her instantly. Okay, let go of me, Cassie yelled. We released our grip. Ah! Thump! Ow! I'm okay, but ow! Cassie was inside the truck. Marco followed quickly. It was easier with someone inside to assist. The driver behind us did not notice me but he definitely noticed the others as they swung down into the truck. The driver was smiling, making a sort of pumping motion with his fist and yelling. I believe what he yelled was, I am unclear as to the meaning, but I believe they were noises of approval. He cannot possibly have known our mission, of course, so I took it as a general approval of the notion of breaking into trucks. Or perhaps he merely enjoyed acrobatics. 
the driver passed us by. And now it was my turn. Just one problem. I could not possibly support my own weight with my own arms and fingers. I had to morph to human. And looking ahead, I could already see the far end of the tunnel. We had used more time than we should have. I had only two minutes left. Hello, Phantomorphs, and thank you for listening to another episode of Audiomorphs, Nanomorphs Auditory Experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode. Great to have you. Um, I've got some, I got some questions and comments uh, sent in through a variety of means that I would like to read to you now. Uh, the first one is on Tumblr, that's audiomorphscast.tumblr.com, um, and it comes from Mystic Ferret, who writes, Tobias calling the dude who was dogging Rachel cute, while also calling out his bad behavior at the end of book 27, seems a little bi- uh, seems a little bisexual, if you ask me. And then that, like, thinking face emoji. Then, great job with the podcast so far. I never read Animorphs growing up, but I was aware of its existence. Thanks to you, I've gotten a chance to experience it myself as an adult. Kinda kicking my grade school self for never seeking this out. I fell into the HP craze instead, and look how that turned out. And then, like, one of those, like, eh, uh, that's, that's a bad description. It's the, it's the emoji, uh, that's kinda got, like, its hands, like, under its chin, and it's, like, kinda smiling. It's like, gosh darn. Um, <laughs> and then, anyway, just wanted to say thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you for writing in, Ferret. Um, appreciate that. Uh, I, I personally read that Tobias passage as kind of like a teasing, uh, oh, he's, he's cute, isn't he? Because, you know, uh, Rachel or Tobias likes Rachel romantically. And this is like a safe way to like, kind of be like, but I'm not weird about it. I'm not like possessive because we aren't dating. You know, he's cute, whatever. You can go out with him. But I'm um, also maybe, maybe Tobias is bisexual. I know a lot of people read, uh, Marco as bisexual because of the way he talks to Jake often feels like flirting. Um, and I know a lot of people read Tobias's whole arc as kind of like a trans allegory, so, uh, it's all open to interpretation, and why shouldn't he, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, don't kick yourself for, for not reading this, uh, when you were young. It was, A, hard, hard to do because of just how many books they were, and, you know, book fairs and libraries, you know, wasn't guaranteed you'd ha- you'd have the next book in the series, um... You get to experience it now, and that's just as good. We're all learning and growing every day. Uh, I also have an ask from uh, our old friend Willis the Arst, who writes in saying, Woohoo! New Axe book! I of course have some Axe observations, but before that, I think Axe is your blessed voice character. When you do Axe's voice, I forget I'm listening to a person read a book, and in my brain I'm just like, Yup, that's Axe. He is just telling me about how his weird week went. I think you slip into character into the character really well. The more we learn about Axe, the further you get into the books, the less I think Andalite in human society are super different and, quote, alien to each other. And the more I think Axe is a bit odd, and the more I think Axe is a bit odd, even by Andalite standards. Being obsessed with cinnamon rolls, eating them until the stomach hurts, the way, uh, likes the way words feel, not finding anyone but Andalites attractive, and the amount of things he does seemingly to bother Marco. I think Axe is the Andalite equivalent of being, uh, to being neurodivergent, because even the other Andalites and aliens seemingly don't have the issues he does. 
I might be dipping into headcanon territory, but it's a part of his character I really like. Like him saying, I don't see how anyone finds humans attractive, and my brother had a kid with a human, and the kid is my best friend in the same book. Uh, it's just an interesting character trait. P.S. Based off the young and the restless bit, I'm betting Axe is going to try to kiss someone by the end of the book. Uh, I don't remember if Axe kisses someone, so we will both find out. But uh, thank you for writing in, and for the rest of it, uh, let's just go point by point. Thank you for liking my Axe voice. Thank you for thinking that fits the character. Uh, it was one I was uh, very, very hesitant about when I started. It kind of came out of necessity. Um, I've talked about this before. I'm not. I don't have any voice acting training. Um, I'm not good at accents. So uh, my repertoire for for how to create a how to craft a different voice is pretty limited. You know, I can go higher. I can go lower. Uh, I can go kind of soft. I can go kind of uh, gruff. Um, and then and then when I did all of those for all the for all the main characters and still had acts, um, I had to I had to come up with something, and that something ended up being kind of a weird cadence thing because you know he's an alien and um uh, maybe maybe he thinks and speaks in a different cadence from us uh that was my reasoning to justify it um i've i've since learned that not everyone <laughs> enjoys um that creative choice uh i've i've heard it called william shatner-esque and i don't disagree sometimes but uh it is what we've got so i'm glad that some people do like it <laughs> in, in conclusion um yeah uh, I, I think, I, I thank you for saying that about uh, my voices. I, I do think that Kay Applegate uh, is exceptional at crafting voice within her books. I think each character has a pretty distinct uh, voice. And it, it I find it's not hard for me to kind of slip into a certain uh, type of attitude or delivery uh, with each character uh, when they're the narrator. It, it seems to come very easily for me. And I'm going to attribute that to Miss um, Applegate's writing more than you know any any talent of mine um but uh thank you for that and then the uh axe might be neurodivergent uh point you've written in is uh not uncommon i i've heard a lot of people say they uh a lot of people with neurodivergence say they've they relate to axe or had related to axe when they read him um because of this uh i i don't know that that was what um Kay Applegate and Michael Grant were going for but um i think that the subtext is certainly there and you can make an argument for it and i think it's a fairly justifiable reading of acts so hell yeah um uh i think i think it's i think that's great <laughs> in conclusion um great uh great point though with the like uh i don't know how anyone could find humans attractive and then like yeah, like a page earlier, he was like, oh yeah, and my brother had a kid with a human. A uh, great point to like him being just kind of weird. I know um, a popular reading of Axe that I ascribe to that I think is really funny is that Axe, because um, Axe is sort of positioned within the group as like the the smart tech guy, right? If, the, if he wasn't an alien, if this were like a, a heist series or whatever, right? The archetype he'd fill in is the hacker or, you know, the tech guy. Um, simply because he is an alien, he's got, you know, alien knowledge, but, like, a lot of the time he doesn't have the answers, and his reason why is, like, yeah, I think we learned about that in class, I was goofing off, or I had a big game coming up, or there was a cute girl I was checking out, which I think is hilarious, yeah, he's, like, uh, uh, the 12-year-old equivalent of an Andalite, and, you know, does goofy kid stuff, 
Um, and so he knows what he knows because Andalite schooling is very good. And, you know, they know a lot more baseline than humans do at this point. Um, but he's, at the end of the day, sort of an impulsive, easily distracted kid. Um, not unlike I was growing up. And um, that's really charming to me. Uh, thank you for writing in, Willis. We have two more messages. These are on Gmail. That's audiomorphcast at gmail.com. The first one comes in from Eduardo, who says, Hello, Daniel. I am a fan of Animorphs. I was born in Cuba, and I managed to get the first 12 books or something like that. Now I come to the USA, and one of the things that helps me get through the work uh, through work is to listen to you while I work. Thank you so much, and keep up your great work. Best regards. Thank you so much for writing, Eduardo. I'm glad I helped you uh, make your work day a little faster. Um, work's never fun, right? Uh, so if I can help make your day a little easier, I'm glad to do so. I also have uh, a message from Michael titled, Hi from Australia. Hi, Daniel. I live in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. I enjoyed your whole catalog over a few months while commuting to work. Thanks for all the time and effort you put in. While listening to the series, I often find myself daydreaming about what I do in the Animorphs' positions. One scenario I kept coming back to was that I would have made more of an effort to try to capture known controllers, starve the Yurks, and gradually build an underground network of ex-controllers. I imagine that Tobias could identify known controllers from the known Yurk pool access points. Then learn their routines and identify a vulnerable moment where they could be kidnapped by Marco and Gorilla Morph with a bottle, uh, with a bottle of chloroform. They'd need some, uh, they need someone to drive a van and an isolated place where the three-day wait could take place. I expect Axe could manage the operation since he wouldn't need to hide his identity. It would be a big logistical challenge, but they would eventually be able to free Tom and get lots of intelligence from freed hosts. Do you also spend too much time thinking about these kind of hypotheticals? would love to hear your thoughts. Take care, Michael. Thank you for writing in, Michael. Um, shout out to the Australian listeners. I know I got a bunch of them. Y'all rock. Um, so, yeah, you know, sometimes I do think about these sort of hypotheticals. Um, one thing I appreciate about the Animorph series is that, like, uh, at least from that perspective, the perspective of, like, logistics and, you know, why didn't they just do this or why didn't they just do that? I think it's actually a pretty... Uh, tightly written series, which isn't to say that characters not doing the most optimal thing equals uh, bad or loose writing. That can sometimes and often is like very realistic, right? Um, the sort of the, the classic go-to is everyone's little five-minute stand-up bit on horror movie protagonists and like, why did they check out that weird noise? Why did they go into the deep dark woods? I wouldn't have done that. Um, and, you know, it's uh, for any genre piece, uh, you sort of have to understand that, unless established within the story, the story building, uh, that the genre that are in doesn't exist in the world. It's sort of like how zombie movies, um, unless it's like a, a satirical sort of comedy zombie movie, um, very often, one, aren't calling them zombies, and B, are acting from a place where zombie media doesn't exist, right? In the world of The Walking Dead, zombie media doesn't exist. Dawn of the Dead never got made, right? Um, and so they have to, like, learn the rules through the course of the show or the movie. Because uh, they don't know them. Because they're not genre savvy. Um, and I think that's very similar to, like, how horror works. Like, uh, pretending for a moment that I owned a house and I heard a weird noise in my basement. Uh, my first thought's probably not, there's a supernatural killer down there. 
it's probably some there was a weird noise in the basement i don't know maybe a raccoon got in i gotta go check that out before he messes up my stuff um having said all that tangent um because that's this, this is a bit of a pet peeve of mine um i think animorphs like does a really good job at considering a lot of those ideas and then providing a reason why that idea wouldn't work even to the point where like there's early on one of them mentions that they don't hang out together as a group at school right because that could become suspicious um oh those five are always hanging out together um and there are you know five andalite bandits or whatever you know um which i i i think is um i appreciate so specifically to your scenario here of capturing controllers um here's the problem what happens after you free their yerk right because uh, the Yurks know that they have a host named Tom that lives, you know, at XYZ Street. Uh, Tom's missing now. His Yurk's missing. He didn't report in for his Kondrona. What's going on? That's a security breach. We got to find him. And suppose they can't find wherever the Animorphs have, have snuck Tom off to to starve out his Yurk, right? All right, Tom's Yurk is dead now. What does Tom do? Tom can't go back home. The Yurks are watching his home. He can't go to school. The Yurks are watching his school uh he can't contact any of his friends or family the yurks are watching them trying to catch him because now he's at security risk it's been over three days they know tom's yurk is dead they know tom is free they can't have him telling anyone about their operation right it's the conundrum they had with david right uh they couldn't just uh leave david there because he'd be infested but once they took him in they couldn't he couldn't just like you know go home go to school. He had to stay in hiding the whole time. Um, and the same thing would happen to, to Tom, right? And the more you do that, the harder it is to find a place to keep them all safe while also getting them food. They're 12, you know? H how are they going to get them food, enough food to live every day? Um, I think it becomes more viable once the free Hork-Bajir colony is set up. But again, Hork-Bajir eat bark. You know, you'd have to set up some sort of like farming situation for those humans and they'd also have to the humans you free would also have to know how to farm um they'd also have to be okay with the idea of of not being able to contact their loved ones uh if if you know you've been held captive by aliens for for maybe years uh i i would be very tempted to to be to reach out to my loved ones and and like be able to actually speak to your loved ones for the first time in years you see them Every day, and you can't talk to them, you can't touch them, you can't communicate at all with them. And now to have that ability and be told you can't do that, like, that's very tough. Especially from a 12-year-old. If you're older than 12, you're like, you're just a 12-year-old. You don't tell me what to do, right? I mean, even David was like, you don't tell me what to do. And he was also a 12-year-old. Um, so those are the issues with, with trying to pull this sort of stunt, in my opinion. Um, also, another point is, if Marco is in Gorilla more if we don't need a bottle of chloroform... We can just have Marco tap them on the head. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's that's my thought on at least that one hypothetical. Uh, I know there are a couple others that uh, get brought up a lot in, in you know, uh, the Animorph subreddit or the Animorph, one, one of the many Animorph Facebook groups. Um, for example, like, you know, why didn't Alfangor uh, morph at the construction site and, and heal? Um, and my answer for that is... He was too weak, uh, right? There's a lot of times where the animals barely manage to get out of morph because they're so weak or injured. Same thing in reverse. He can't morph because he's he's so injured. Um, a great question that I don't have an answer for is why Alfangor had a morphing cube 
on his ship. Uh, there's there's no reason for an Andalite to have that technology outside of the homeworld, right? There's no reason for that cube to leave the homeworld, so I don't know about that. Um, but the other great thing about Animorphs is they have a literal deus ex machina, right? Uh, anytime something's like, well, that was a little weird or that was a little coincidental, uh, the Elemis did it, right? Uh, Alfangor has the Morphing Cube because the Elemis made sure he had the Morphing Cube because that's the only way he, uh, the Elemis could put the Animorphs on the board. Um... My favorite headcanon, sorry, now I'm rambling, but my favorite headcanon that I came up with um, recently is that I think that Alaron getting infested was actually the Elemist. I think the Elemist made sure he was in a position to become infested by Esplin. And I think this because a large reason why the Animorphs are successful in their fight against the Yurks is because Visser 3 is an idiot, right? He's super arrogant. Uh, he doesn't take advice well, he's always killing his subordinates, he's super aggro, he doesn't like, um, being subtle. A lot of the ways that they escape Yurk capture is because Visser 3 is very bad at his job. And the only reason Visser 3 is in the position he's in is because he managed to obtain an Andalite host. That's what rocketed him, um, up the, the sub-Visser hierarchy and allowed him to climb to the rank of Visser 3. And so I think that was a, that's the exact sort of like long con play that the LMS is supposed to be known for, right? A subtle nod, nudge in probability puts this character on this path and eventually years later will put him in this position, which will benefit the Elemist. Um, at least that's my thoughts. Uh, if anyone else has some cool Elemist or Kryak thoughts, you know, write in. Let me know. You can do that through the aforementioned Tumblr. That's audiomorphscast.tumblr.com. This Gmail. That's audiomorphscast.com. That, that's audiomorphscast at gmail.com. And, uh, of course, through my website, that's theapodcalypse.com. The Apocalypse, like Apocalypse, but with a D in the middle. Uh, you can also reach me on Twitter, that's at audiomorphs, and that's where you should check if I'm ever, like, uploading. That's where I will, uh, be putting, uh, an update for why. And you can also reach me by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, I guess. It's a bit of a weird way, but I appreciate the review if you do it. Um, you can also, uh, I, I don't know, troll the, the Animorph subreddit or, um, one of the bigger Animorphs Facebook groups and you might find me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm around. Uh, anyway, thank you all for listening. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you all next week. My name is Daniel and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight. We fight.